Have you heard this expression get used, my truth? Have you heard that being thrown around? That is the most philosophically incoherent statement you could ever make. Our world would do very well to just take philosophy 101 or logic 101. There is no such thing as my truth. Truth is singular. It is an objective reality. There's your perspective. You could say my perspective, but there's only one singular truth. Now here's what's happening. It's becoming immoral. It's becoming borderline hate speech to tell somebody your worldview is wrong. This is the truth. That's considered unloving. That's considered hateful. Because what's happened is an idea has been pushed onto us. And you know what the idea is? The idea has been pushed onto us that you can't push your idea on other people. <laughs> Do you see how inconsistent that is though? Don't push your ideas on me, but here you must take this idea. Welcome to Shelter Cove Online. We are so glad that you're joining us today for this sermon. We hope and pray that this message encourages you, that you learn something, that you enjoy it. But more than that, we just pray that God would move in your life, that he would reveal some more of himself to you today. If you would like to respond to this message in any way, you can contact us at sheltercovelive.com. Have an amazing rest of your day. I can still picture what this kid looked like clear as day. His image is still crystal clear in my mind. He walked around at about five foot 10 as an eighth grader, but he stood at school a lot taller than that because he wore these really big black platform boots. Probably walked around at like six foot three as an eighth grader. As an eighth grader, this kid had a full beard, not a little straggly 13 year old prepubescent beard, full man beard and he grew his fingernails out like freakishly long. It was really creepy. He wore the same thing to school every single day. Those black boots, those, he had black pants on, a black t-shirt with a black trench coat over the top of it. And every single one of his black t-shirts had some kind of snarky little comment written on it. I remember one t-shirt clear as day. It was written in red letters across the front. It said, Mary had a little lamb, dot, 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 but I ate it. <laughs> so here's me as this little innocent seventh grader coming out of elementary school, and I'm looking at this guy on the first day of school. I am scared to death of this kid. Fast forward through the school year, about halfway through the year, it's a Friday afternoon. I'm at Christian Club, and we get done with group a little bit early because they gave us a challenge. Go out into the courtyard, out into the quad, and share with five people the truth that Jesus loves them. So I go out there, hard charger, and I'm like, yeah, let's go. And I'm telling mostly of my friends, like some of them go to church with me, not a big leap of faith. But I'm like, hey, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. And they're like, yeah, cool, we go to church with you. We already know that. And then I see him. Teenage Darth Vader standing over in the corner. And the Lord's like, Chad, him. And I was like, Jesus. No. <laughs> and the Lord starts bugging me. He's just like prodding my soul. He, Lord ever bugged you, not let something go? He's just bugging me. No, no, him. Chad, you gotta go, him. 
All right, fine. So I walk over to him and uh, there's Lord Voldemort himself with his old goth crew of friends and they're standing and I approach and they're in a circle and I'm kind of outside the circle. They don't even acknowledge that I'm there. It's like 15, 20 seconds, they're just talking. Don't even acknowledge I'm there. Finally, he looks at me, doesn't say anything, he just looks at me. And I'm like, hi, uh, so, oh gosh, please don't kill me. Uh, I just wanted to tell you that uh, Jesus loves you. And there's this awkward silence. Kind of like that silence right there. <laughs> and then they start laughing hysterically, all of them. They just all start cracking up laughing. And it dawns on me, I have no idea how to go, what to do past this point. Like, do I double down and start preaching harder or do I just bail? And so I just bailed. I just walk out of the situation super awkwardly, go back to my friends and my friends are like, I can't believe you talked to him. Did he try to drink your blood? What did he do? Like, what happened? And I'm like, I, I make jokes about it. I try to play it off like it's no big deal. I, I try to kind of diffuse it. But if I was being honest, if I would have been honest as a little seventh grader, do you know what I would have told my friends? That left an imprint on me. I started to associate sharing my faith with ridicule and embarrassment. And there would be some things that happened in eighth grade and in ninth grade that would set that impression even deeper. If I open my mouth about Jesus, I get made fun of, I get embarrassed. And as an insecure little teenager, I wanted nothing more than to just fit in. That was really hard for me. Here's why I tell you all of this. We're gonna start a series today called Urgent Care. The heartbeat behind this series is to remind ourselves what's our mission and what's the urgency that that mission carries with it. But we gotta be careful because I can tell you till I'm blue in the face, blue in the face, here's what the message is. Here's what the mission is. But if I don't get at some of the fears and some of the roadblocks that keep us from actually doing this, then I think we're gonna spin our wheels today. I think I'm gonna be talking mostly to the wall, not to souls. So here's what I wanna do. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, we're gonna see very clearly the mission Christ has given to us. Matthew 28 explicitly lays out what our mission is. I wanna make sure we tease that apart so we're all on the same page. Then once we know our mission, I wanna move over to, to try and dismantle some of the roadblocks that keep us from actually living the mission out. It's my hope that you would leave out of these doors today knowing crystal clear, I know what my job is and I know how to tear down some of the things that are keeping me from doing my job. Sound good? Let's stand in honor of God's word. We're gonna read Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. We got it on the screens behind me as well. Here's how my translation begins. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. I love that verse. I love that that's in there. We're gonna talk about that. 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Did you, say, did you see that says name, not names? There's three people, but one name. This is where we get, one of the verses we get the Trinity from. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these souls here, God. Thank you for these men and women. I pray, as always, Spirit of God, you would illuminate the word of God to them. You would challenge and you would correct and you would disciple, God, that you would uh, teach us how to love you more and teach us how to walk closer with you. Um, Lord, these people are bringing in all kinds of stuff that I'm unaware of, but you know it. And so I pray that by your power, Lord, you would get down to their hearts and you, and you would do a really cool work in their lives. I'm praying for that. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. In our passage here, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He has resurrected from the dead, shown himself to his disciples in Jerusalem for a couple of days. It's been about three or four days since he's resurrected from the dead. He then tells his disciples, I want you to go about 50 miles north to Galilee. They did a lot of ministry up in Galilee. Go about 50 miles north to Galilee. I'll meet you up there. They take off, go up to Galilee, and they meet Jesus on a mountain, on a hillside. And when they see him, verse 17 says, they worshiped, and then some of them were still struggling with doubt. You know why I love that verse so much? It tells me that Matthew is accurately recording history. It tells me that he's not trying to portray himself and the rest of the disciples in any other light than what they actually were. He's not like, we had instant, perfect, bulletproof faith and little halos over our head. That's not what he says. He's, he's living in the tension of what it must have really been like to see a guy come back from the dead. They're like, oh my goodness, he's here. We watched him die. We watched him get buried and he's right there. And they worship King of Kings. You are Lord of Lords, all praise and glory. And then they're like, are we losing our minds? You know, why I love that so much because if I was one of the disciples, that's how I would feel. I felt like that in church sometimes. Oh my goodness, God, you are so awesome. You are so good. Am I really believing this? I just love that, that that's there. I love how honest the Bible is. Then Jesus goes into 18, all authority, heaven and earth is mine. I control everything. Go therefore and make disciples. Here's your mission. As Christians, we are called to be on mission to make disciples. That's our job. Be intentional, be on mission to make disciples. Jeremy uses this language all the time. We are missionaries, we are disciple makers. But what I wanna do is tease this apart a little bit to make sure we all have the same definitions. I wanna make sure we're all on the same page. So what do I mean when I say the word disciple? What does it mean to make a disciple? A disciple is not somebody who has church attendance, but no life change. It's not a disciple. A disciple is not somebody who got beat over the head by a fear-mongering sermon, robotically prayed a prayer and raised their hand because they were more afraid of hell than loving Jesus. But their life has never been changed after raising their hand. That's not a disciple. A disciple literally means student. It means a follower. We are students of our master, of Jesus. And we aren't just studying facts about Jesus, although those are important. What we're really studying is how to become more like Jesus. That's a disciple. 
It is a student who's becoming like their master. That's a disciple. So then the question becomes, how do we make disciples? Jesus laid it out, baptize them. Baptize them and then teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. What's so special about baptism? Is there anything inherently saving or, or life-changing about dunking someone in water? No. I dunk my little kids in the bathtub all the time and when they come up out of the water, they're still wicked little sinners. <laughs> water, physical water does nothing to cleanse the soul. So why does he say baptism? Because what baptism or the power of baptism is, it's in the inward faith that outwardly expresses itself in baptism. Baptism is me going, I want to publicly and outwardly express what I inwardly trust and what I inwardly hold true. Think about baptism. You're in the water, it's a pool or the ocean or a river. The water is really insignificant. It doesn't matter what kind of water. They dunk you down and then they bring you back up. That is picturesque of what we inwardly believe as Christians. We believe that Christ went to the cross on our behalf. He served our death penalty on our behalf, paid all of my sins on the cross. That's why Paul says, my old sinful self has died on the cross with Jesus. It is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. So I believe all the wrath of God, all my old sinful ways have been laid onto Christ, killed on the cross, and they've been buried in the ground. That's, that's picturesque of us going under the water. But church, Jesus didn't stay dead. If somebody doesn't say, amen, I'm gonna walk out of this place. Amen. He didn't stay dead. He goes under, under, the bear, under the burden of our sin, but then conquers the burden of our sin, conquers the wrath of God that should have befallen us. He comes up out of the grave and in the same way we come up out of the water, that is picturesque of the new spirit-filled life awaiting the believer. You and I have a foreign power living inside the soul. It is the spirit of almighty God. He is the one that makes us into disciples. He's the one that empowers us unto righteousness. You're not meant to white knuckle obedience unto God. That's miserable and it doesn't work. You were meant to be forgiven entirely by the work of Christ on the cross and then given new resurrection life via the Spirit. So when we come up out of the water, that's picturesque of the new life Jesus came up out of. He rises again from the dead and it's symbolic of us. We're gonna rise, not just here and now, but for eternity to come. So he goes baptized, not because water cleanses the soul, but faith and what I have done cleanses the soul. And we outwardly proclaim that. That's baptism. You haven't been baptized? We're doing it in three weeks, sign up. And then he says, teach, teach them how to obey. So here's what we do. We are now citizens of the kingdom. We're disciples, we're, we're becoming like our master. We're learning how to live like Jesus. And we bring people along with us. Hey man, I'm learning how, I'm learning how our master has ordered money. I'm learning how our master has ordered human sexuality. Did you know he's ordered this for our joy and for our freedom? Did you know he is a God who is joy embodied and he gives us the commands not to repress, but to free, to liberate? And we, and we bring people along. Let me show you how he's handling this. Let me show you how he pictures this to work. 
And we encourage one another. We challenge one another. This takes place in all kinds of different ways. It could be sermons. It could be Bible studies. It could be life groups. It could be hanging out for a, a cup of coffee and talking with your buddy. I mean, it, it, that takes place in all kinds of different ways. But we're encouraging and spurring each other on to further obedience. That's discipleship. We're becoming like our master. Who do we do this to? All nations. In the Greek, that literally reads all ethnicities. All ethnicities. Acts chapter one explains, start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, then go to the ends of the earth. So we start in our homes. We start in our homes. Dads, dads, you are the spiritual leader of your home. That doesn't negate the role your wife has. She has a very important role, but God has placed the, the burden of leadership on the men. How are you leading in your home? Because make no mistake, you're leading one way or the other. We teach our kids this. We start in the homes and then it builds out into our community, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, the coffee shops, the restaurants, the gyms, all the places that we frequent. Then it goes further to, to the rest of the city, to the state, to the country, all the way to the ends of the earth. That's why we're going to Mexico. That's why we're going to Peru. We wanna take this seriously. So that's our mission. Go make disciples. Tell anybody and everybody about this. I love what Vodi Bakum says. He says, not everybody, everybody. Tell everybody about it. <laughs> Tell everyone. Okay, not hard to understand, pretty straightforward. How are you doing with it? Because if you're anything like me, when I sat down to start preparing this, I was like, God, I gotta repent. I got some room to grow here. I think I've been favoring comfort over the mission you have given to me. So let's chat here about some of the roadblocks that keep us from doing it. Because I don't think it's really hard to grasp this. We can see the mission. There's a ton of things that make us go, yeah, well, I don't know about that. I, I see what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not sure. So here's roadblock number one. I just don't know if I trust Jesus. I'm not sure Christianity is even true. I, I've seen things in school. I've seen videos on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, like they're questioning the faith. And I've got questions. I, how are you expecting me to talk about something I don't even know if I fully believe? And listen, man, I get that because that's my bent. My bent is towards skepticism and doubt. So I get that. Maybe, man, this one's insidious. Maybe you got hurt by the church or you saw something happen in a church and it just left a horrible taste in your mouth. How could Jesus be true and that kind of evil get perpetrated in his church? Well, let me tell you what I think is the most important question to answer in Christianity. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if he didn't rise from the dead, who gives a rip about the rest of the Bible? This is the most important question. I wanna point your attention to it right now. The resurrection. There is strong, strong evidence that the resurrection of Christ really happened. I am not going to stand up here and argue for you to believe in the resurrection on blind faith. Christianity is different from all the other religions of the world. Because all through the Bible, the appeal to belief is not blind, ignorant faith. It's through eyewitness accounts. I'll explain what I mean. 
There's a guy named in the New Testament, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. He's the guy who owns the tomb Jesus is buried in. Do you know why his name is mentioned so much and why it's so important? His name is so important because it is a second-hand corroboration of the disciples' testimony. When the disciples start saying, the tomb's empty, you guys are not going to believe this, Christ is risen from the dead, a skeptic could go, I don't know. That's a crazy claim. I've never seen anybody rise from the dead in my entire life. What tomb did you say he was buried in? Oh, Joseph of Arimathea, high-ranking, popular Jewish official, not some random guy in the sticks, like very well-known dude. Well, I'll go ask him. Hey, did Jesus, did Jesus really get buried in your tomb? Can I see the tomb? If you're trying to pull off a lie, you shouldn't name specific people like Joseph of Arimathea because it allows skeptics to fact check. Then we have Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, who makes one of the wildest claims in the whole Bible. He says Christ rose again according to the scriptures and then showed himself to over 500 people. So his appeal to this pagan Greek church is not believe on blind faith. It's I saw him and 500 people others saw him. You can go fact check what I'm telling you. There is no other religion on planet earth that makes that kind of claim. All the cornerstone miracles of every other religion, they're witnessed by nobody. Like the ascension of Muhammad into heaven in Islam, witnessed by nobody. That's convenient. Joseph Smith getting the gold tablets, new revelation for Mormonism, witnessed by nobody. Nobody ever saw the gold tablets. Nobody still to this day has seen the gold tablets. That's convenient. That's not how the disciples argue. We saw him. You don't have to take our word for it. Go ask Joseph of Arimathea. Go ask the 500 other people who witnessed the risen Christ in Jerusalem. Now, if these guys are lying, what should happen to Christianity? In the first century, it should be discovered to be false. People should have been like, these guys are off their rocker. What instead happens to Christianity? It explodes. Despite the fact Christians are being set on fire at Roman parties, being fed to lions in the Colosseum and getting pelted to death with rocks. How do you explain that? You got to come up with some explanation for the explosion of Christianity despite all the persecution. Seems to me the most logical answer is they really saw the resurrected Christ. And if that's true, well then yes, we may see impropriety in the church, but it's not because Jesus is false. It's because the church is filled with wicked people. then yes, there may be other questions you have, but if Christ really resurrected from the dead, well, then, then we have the courage to wrestle with those questions. Roadblock number two. Chad, I'm just not the best Christian. I don't know if you want me on the Jesus team trying to bring people onto the, into the church. If you knew how I talked at work, if you knew how I talked in my home, if you knew the secret sins and the addictions that I wrestle with, I don't think you'd be asking me to be on mission for Jesus. I'm the kind of guy people usually try to invite to church. Let's take a quick look at Jesus's disciples and what Jesus did through his disciples. Because here on this mountainside, it's just Jesus and the disciples. There's 11 of them. 
And I don't know if you know this about Jesus's crew. He's got a ratchet, rough around the edge type of guys. Like he surrounded himself with some salty people. They're people you probably wouldn't hire at your job and people you probably wouldn't have on your church staff. Like John is in the crowd. John, who when the Samaritans reject Jesus, you know what John does? John goes, hey, Jesus, you want me to call down fire from heaven and burn all these fools up? So you got some anger issues, right? You punch holes in walls and you throw things and and you're dropping F-bombs. Okay. John would be like, I tried to burn a whole city to the ground. And you want to know what happens to John when he meets the resurrected Christ? John writes the gospel of John and the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Do you know what books of the Bible have more verses on love than any other books in the Bible? Those books. John goes from a guy trying to burn cities to the ground to the disciple who talks more about love than anyone else. Peter is in the crowd. Peter's sitting on this hillside listening to Jesus. Jesus called Peter Satan to his face. So I get it. You probably drink more than you should. You probably have some sexual sins that the Lord would not uh, consider good and consider holy. And, and there's probably some deviancy there that you need to wrestle with. I get it. You probably got some, some secrets that need to come to light. I get it. But I'm just going to guess Jesus has never called you Satan to your face. And yet what happens to Peter? In just a few days, Peter's gonna give a sermon where thousands of people come to faith in Christ. Peter, who was filled with cowardice. Peter, who talked up a big game and had no actions to back it up. Literally said to Jesus, I'll go to the death for you. And then a little girl asks him, weren't you one of Jesus's disciples? And he crumbles. You know what happens to him though? He meets the resurrected Christ. Peter becomes a ferocious man of God, ferocious. In one of the most gangster moments of all church history, Peter, before a Roman tribunal, is about to be crucified for his faith. He doesn't recant, he doesn't grovel, he doesn't plead for his life. You know what he does? He says, my only request is that I be crucified upside down. I'm not worthy to die like Jesus. Wow. So I get it, man. You, you probably have some sins. I know. Here's how you kill sin off. You confess, you repent, you ask the Lord, kill this sin in my life. Please kill it. And then you get people around you. Get some people around you who can hold you accountable and spur you on to love and good works. You won't make it alone. Get people around you to help hold you accountable. That's how you fight sin. But brother, sister, if you're waiting till you're perfect to get into the game, you'll never get in the game. That's one of Satan's greatest tricks. You're too much of a screw up. You're too much of a loser. You'll never get in the game. The Bible's full of screw ups and losers. That's the point. Jesus takes the most rough around the edge people and turns them into unbelievable forces to be reckoned with. He can do that with you. It just starts with you going, please help me. Please turn me into something I could never turn myself into. 
yeah, confess, repent. Let's go to battle with sin. Let's kill it off. But let's also lean on the grace of God. Number three, this is the hardest one to deal with. I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. And underneath this banner of I don't feel like it, there's all kinds of reasons. I'm too busy. Uh, I got too much going on. Maybe it's kind of how I felt in middle school. I don't want to be embarrassed. I'm worried how my spouse will respond. I'm worried how my neighbor will, will respond. I'm, I'm worried how this person at work is going to respond. I'm scared. Maybe, and this is a really weird thing happening in our, our day and age today. Have you heard this expression get used, my truth? Have you heard that being thrown around? That is the most philosophically incoherent statement you could ever make. Our world would do very well to just take philosophy 101 or logic 101. There is no such thing as my truth. Truth is singular. It is an objective reality. There's your perspective. You could say my perspective, but there's only one singular truth. Now here's what's happening. It's becoming immoral. It's becoming borderline hate speech to tell somebody your worldview is wrong. This is the truth. That's considered unloving. That's considered hateful. Because what's happened is an idea has been pushed onto us. And you know what the idea is? The idea has been pushed onto us that you can't push your idea on other people. <laughs> Do you see how inconsistent that is though? Don't push your ideas on me, but here you must take this idea. And listen, if Christ really rose from the dead, nobody else has done that. Confucius, still in the grave. Buddha, still in the grave. Nobody's risen from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, then how hateful would we be to not share that? How, how hurtful is that to not go, listen, I love you. I don't want to be disrespectful. You're an image bearer and I don't want to be, I don't want to degrade you, but listen, I got to tell you, I think you're off. Listen, I think you're headed down a road that's going to hurt you. So how do we deal with this? I just don't feel like it. Let's talk about the nature of commands in the Bible. Has it ever dawned on you that, that Jesus says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? And then has it ever raised a question in your head? Why in the world then does he give us this job? When I read this, I'm like, Jesus, you would do so much better with this job than we would. You have all authority. Why would you give this job to hypocritical, inconsistent, doubtful, sinful little humans? It has to do with the nature of commands. Because make no mistake, this is a command. That word go is not a recommendation. It's in the command form. Go. So when someone says, I just don't feel like it, I'm always a little bit like, well, who's Lord in your life then? Are you calling the shots or is Jesus calling the shots? I work as a firefighter. I'm a full-time firefighter paramedic and I have a, a rank structure that I have to follow. If my lieutenant gives me an order, if my battalion chief gives me an order and I say no, I get fired. Hey, I need you to grab that, grab that hose and advance into the fire. Nah, I don't feel like it guess what? You're not going to feel like having a job anymore. How much more is that true with an eternal almighty God? So he's given us a command, but he doesn't give us a command to flex his power and to like, and to make us writhe and wriggle underneath his authority. That's not his intention. 
I'm reading through the book of Deuteronomy right now, and, and in Deuteronomy, I'm amazed how many times this phrase gets repeated. It, it says something like this. Be sure to keep all the commands I'm giving you that it may go well with you in the land. All these commands he gives us, keep these, keep these, keep these, that it may go well with you. Jesus has designed the human machine. He knows how it works best. And so when he gives us these commands, it's, it's trying to teach us, here's how the machine works best. Don't put diesel in a gasoline car. It's not gonna work. In the same way, you're not meant to internalize sin. It will destroy you. You know why the commands are hard for us though? You know why they feel like God's trying to constrict and hold us back? Because oftentimes the commands are poking at an idol we hold dear and we don't wanna give it up. And this command gets at one of the biggest idols in the entire Western world, the idol of comfort and ease. I'll love you, Jesus, as long as you make my life easy and comfortable. Mm -mm. No, Jesus will not tolerate that. He's king. And he won't tolerate it because he's insecure. He won't tolerate it because he's truthful. He knows that's not the case. And because he knows that if we worship comfort and ease, we won't find comfort. We'll be miserable. The God of comfort and ease makes for a horrible God. What you really need is Jesus. You don't need more comfort. You need more Christ. And you want to know how you get more Christ? It's not by staying in your comfortable bubble. You get more Jesus by stepping out and being a little bit afraid. That's where you get more Christ. You know where your faith becomes alive and vibrant? It's not staying safe. It's getting just a little bit dangerous. Taking the step that kind of scares you and kind of makes you go, all right, Jesus, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Please help your boy out. That's where your faith comes alive. That's where you get more of him. And he's just well aware. You don't need anything else in this world. You need more of him. So that's why he says, go. My son, my daughter, I love you. I gotta get you out of your comfort zone. So go. Sometimes that's a gentle push. Sometimes he just like kicks us out of the comfort zone. So Go. Two questions and then we'll end our time. Number one, are you on the sideline or are you on mission? Where are you at? Are you in the fight or are you just been chilling on the sideline? I can't decide that for you. I can't make the decision of where you're gonna move, but I do believe that some of you in here are gonna go, you know what, I have been passive. I have been lazy. I have idolized comfort and safety more than the mission God has given me. I wanna get on mission. Here's how you start. Next point, who's your one? We use this language all the time in this church. Who's the one? Who's the one person in your life that needs Jesus more than they need their next breath? And here's what you do. Okay, you ready? You pray for him. Start praying regularly. It doesn't have to be like an 800 hour prayer. It could be five seconds. Lord, I pray for Jim. I pray you would soften his heart. I pray for Nancy. God, I pray you would soften her heart. She needs you. Do something in her life, Lord. And then you walk out these doors, get one of those Easter invite cards. Just, you only need one, just pick one. If you try and do like 18, you'll be overwhelmed and you won't do anything. And you're not getting extra credit for it, all right? Just do one. Grab a card, pray for this person, pray for him for a couple days. 
You see them in your neighborhood, you see them at work, you see them at the coffee shop. Hey, I don't know if you have a church, but I love my church and I'd love it if you came to Easter. Easter is one of the greatest on-ramps to the church. It's so easy. People expect to be invited to, to church on Easter. It's like, that's just kind of what you do. It's like you go to church on Easter. So it's not weird. It's not awkward. Take one of those invite cards and invite them. Does that feel scary? Good, because you'll get more of Jesus. Will you be mocked or rejected? I don't know, maybe. But Jesus said, if they hated me, they're also gonna hate you. And Jesus also said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before the Father. So you get a little bit of a hard time, good. I'm gonna be straight with you. Christianity's not for the faint of heart. It takes men and women with backbones. I wanna be a church full of backbones. So let's do this. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the call. The call here is not to oppress. It's not to restrict us, God. It's to push us closer to you, deeper, deeper in relationship with you. That's what we need, Lord. We don't need more ease. We don't need more entertainment. We don't need more comfort. We need more Christ. Forgive me, Lord, for the times that I lose sight. I, I lose sight of that easily. But thank you for your loving correction. Thank you, God, that you're for our joy. And so I pray now for the ones. God, all these people in here, I, I, they got one. They got that one person. I pray now you'd start softening their hearts and preparing them to receive, Lord. I pray you'd give us courage. Give us courage, Lord, when we feel scared. And I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen. I love you guys. Thank you for being here. Check out all the kiosks outside. There's a ton of great mission work and uh, ministry happening out there. See you next time. God bless.